Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Austin McCormick here. And before we uh, begin to talk about our topic today, which is uh, an introduction to the doctrines of grace, I want to take just a moment to introduce our panel. We have Jimmy Johnson, as normal, uh, the co-host of the show. We have Ryan Pendergraft, who has been on multiple times. Uh, He's talked about preaching through Revelation and... What was the other uh, topic we discussed with you, Brother Ryan? I really think that's the only thing you don't ever have me on. So I, uh... I believe, I believe our episode was just in, who is Ryan Pendergraft. Oh, that's <laughs> right, that's right. We had who is Ryan Pendergraft, and then we had uh, a time where you uh, talked about preaching through Revelation, and then uh, we're excited to have another uh, one of our previous interviewees on Dewey Dovel, and he's actually going to be joining joining this panel today as a co-interviewer for this series that we're going to be doing on the doctrines of grace. So before we begin to talk about uh, our subject, I'll ask Dewey, can you just take a few moments to reintroduce yourself to our audience and perhaps talk about some of the ways that you have been involved uh, with us, Covenant Media, Covenant Podcast, or Covenant Confessions, however you want to answer that. Absolutely, Austin. It's a joy to be back with you guys. Um, Just as far as my personal life is concerned, I've been married for nearly four years, and I'm originally from the Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas Metroplex, and uh, currently serving as the pastor of youth education and discipleship at First Baptist Church in uh, in Edna, Texas, which is about an hour and a half southwest of Houston, Texas, right along the uh, coastline of the Gulf of Mexico. Um, As far as my studies right now, I'm about halfway through my uh, Doctor of Educational Ministry program at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I'm concentrating uh, that degree in the uh, discipline of apologetics. Um, My doctoral thesis is being written under the supervision of Dr. Stephen Wellam, and Lord willing, I'm hoping to have that prepared for defense within the next two years, so I'm grateful to be making some progress on that since the last time I was on the podcast. Um, As far as my involvement with with Covenant Confessions and, and just with you guys, uh, broadly speaking, I've been a regular contributor to this blog for uh, a little bit more than two years now and um, had the privilege of being interviewed on dispensationalism back in the fall of 2020. So um, I'm, I'm always grateful to be able to contribute to this blog and and now to this podcast. And uh, hopefully the Lord gives us uh, many years together laboring for uh, his glory and for the the building up of his people uh, as well. So thank you for having me back. Looking forward to a great discussion in this series. Yeah, and like I said, uh, Dewey's going to be co-interviewing uh, Jimmy and Ryan uh, today. And I would take some time to ask Ryan to introduce himself to uh, again, but we've done a whole episode called Who is Ryan Pendergraft? So you can go and find that show in uh, our previous episodes. So um, we'll just ask Jimmy to start us. We'll give Ryan an opportunity to talk in a little bit. But Jimmy, let's go ahead and jump into our discussion, namely the doctrines of grace. And to do so, would you give us a brief history and definition of the doctrines of grace? Yes, but before I get into the history, as will be seen in later episodes, we we all here believe that 
the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, sometimes referred to as the acronym TULIP, that all these doctrines are ultimately derived from Scripture. But in terms of them being hammered out and formulated confessional way, it took place in history. There was a historical and and cultural and political context in which these doctrines were hammered out. So this episode, and as Austin asked, we're going to spend some time just giving a very, very surface level historical introduction. There are a lot more details, a lot more names that could be mentioned, but basically I just want to give context to the doctrines of grace. And one other point of preface is the doctrines of grace, as we understand them, are not meant to be a sum total of what is to be believed. Um, There are much more things that we confess than the doctrines of grace. And these doctrines of grace actually arose within a broader theological and confessional context. So that being said, Really, the controversy out of which these doctrines were formulated in the way that most of us know them today in a very truncated form centers around a man by the name of Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius was actually a Dutch Reformed pastor and eventually a professor in a Dutch Reformed institution. And Basically, where it began is he was asked to refute a Roman Catholic who had written a critical review of Theodore Beza's works on predestination. And Arminius had actually been educated under Beza and spent some time in Geneva, as well as under some other esteemed Reformed theologians. But as he was studying and reading the Roman Catholic, reading Beza's views, he, he became horrified of, of what Beza actually was saying and began to sympathize with the, with the Roman Catholic in, in his understanding of predestination. And that was particularly where he began to took issue, but over time he began to take issue with other views within the Reformed confessional framework. But as the controversy began to heat up between Arminius and some other Reformed pastors, particular professors, particularly one who worked at the same institution he did, Arminius suddenly died before it could be resolved. And his followers took up his mantle and they began to be known as the Remonstrants. And the Remonstrants published five points to delineate what it is that they believed about salvation. And we might summarize them as follows. Number one, in the decree of election, God has purposed to save those whom he foreknows will believe and persevere in faith to the end. So again, it's predestination based off of God almost looking down the corridors of time. That's kind of what's being described here. I'm sure that it would be more um, complex and more articulate than that. But looking forward and seeing how people would respond and believe in the gospel and persevere 
in Christ, and then he chooses them on the basis of what he has seen or foreknows. Number two, Christ by his death has purchased salvation equally for all, but the salvation is only enjoyed through faith. Number three, fallen human beings are enslaved to sin and have no innate power to think, will, or do anything spiritually good unless they are first regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So he, he almost believes in a very similar thing, as we'll see to the, the doctrines of Dort, as it relates to the fallen nature of man. Number four, divine grace alone enables fallen sinners to think, will, or do anything good, yet this grace is always able to be resisted. The difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is that the former cooperate with grace, but the latter resist it. And number five, believers are given all the help of grace to persevere to the end, but whether a true believer can reject this grace, return to his sin, and be forever lost is a question requiring further investigation. And that's how they put it. So they, they almost are agnostic at this point as to whether or not someone can persevere in the faith. And 41 pastors and two professors at pastoral training centers during this time period signed this document that elucidated these five points. And about or less than 10 years later, a group of 56 Dutch pastors Five Dutch professors, 23 delegates from Reformed churches elsewhere in Europe, including Germany, Switzerland, and Britain, gathered together and formulated a response. And it is from this response, the Canons of Dort, that we get what is more popularly known as the five points. Nick Needham, the church historian, summarizes the five points as follows. Number one. Predestination is God's eternal purpose to give saving faith to some sinners out of the mass of fallen humanity. It is unconditional, not based on God's foreknowledge of anything in the chosen or done by them. Number two, the death of Christ is sufficient to save the whole of humanity, but by God's sovereign will, it is effective in actually saving the elect by enlivening them to a true justifying, sanctifying, and persevering faith. Number three, the synod agreed with the third point of the remonstrance. The spiritual inability of fallen man will, apart from divine grace, not be able to respond to the gospel. Man is totally depraved. Number four, the Synod rejected the remonstrant view that grace is always resistible. On the contrary, the grace that regenerates is sovereignly efficacious. And then number five, this grace also ensures that the elect will persevere to the end and enter glory at last. True saving faith can never be entirely lost, and a person can attain an assurance that he or she has this faith and will therefore persevere to the end. And now to kind of bring that all together and, and kind of summarize the five points, you, you can hear where the five points come from in the, that list that I gave, but TULIP, that popular acronym, is understood as T, 
is for total depravity. U is for unconditional election. L is for limited atonement. I is for irresistible grace. And P is for perseverance of the saints. And these doctrines, the doctrines of grace, as, as I like to refer to them, have been confessed and believed by, pre-de- or by Presbyterians, by Reformed Congregationalists during way back when, when they were more prevalent, by Baptists dating all the way back to the early um, mid-17th century, as well as many others have confessed these doctrines, including, and I believe we're going to get into this a little bit later, but including many of early Southern Baptists, including the founders and, and founding faculty at our flagship seminary, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So it is, these beliefs have been held by a wide array of people. But that's some of the history and the background and, and really one name, Jacob Arminius, um, behind the controversy in which these five points were hammered out and formulated in a confessional way. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for those helpful and clarifying insights about Calvinism and just the historical development of um, that theological formulation. Ryan, I want to transition over to you now and um, give you the opportunity to share how you came to personally embrace the doctrines of grace and would be interested to hear how those truths have come to impact your life and ministry. And uh, Ryan, after you have a chance to respond to those questions, would also uh, like to hear from Jimmy as well. I think it would be great to to get a pastoral flavor on um, your experience with the Doctrine of Grace and and how you came to embrace those truths. Yeah, so you know, I I grew up in traditional and, and say traditional Southern Baptist church, but Jimmy has already made the point that you know James Boyce uh, is Calvinist and also Southern Baptist, and a lot of the the founders of the Southern Baptist Convention being Calvinistic. But so traditional, I'm talking about the typical Southern Baptist church today is the kind of church that I grew up in, you know, hymns only. Um, a lot of people just kind of uh, KJVO and, and all these things. And uh, I, I learned about Calvinism from my my pastor growing up. And I remember it was, when was it? It was uh, 2009, I think. I was actually interviewed by the Missouri Baptist Pathway for being the youngest itinerant evangelist in the state of Missouri. Um, And I was interviewed alongside Dr. Tom Johnston, who uh, who was the uh, professor of evangelism at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so as I'm reading this article come about and talking with some other pastors about it, talking with my own pastor, the the very first time that I heard of the term Calvinism, you know, was, was in that year, 2009. And so I was 21 years old before... I had even had an inkling of what uh, Calvinism was, what the doctrines and grace were. And the first time I heard it, I, I was just, I was reluctant to it. I, I didn't 
want anything to do with it. In fact, I, I opposed it. And uh, a few years later, I felt God calling me to, to attend seminary. So I went to Midwestern and, and of course, got to, to meet um, Dr. Johnston. And uh, we had great discussions. But then some of the people that I was around, you know, I, I kind of was plunged headfirst into uh, discussions on Calvinism. And I always hated being a part of the discussions because I, I didn't ever want to hear from a Calvinist because they were arrogant, they were prideful, uh, they they had this view of God that he was a you know a, a big bully. He was only save some and and mistreat others. And and I I remember one guy and they were probably truth be told they were they were probably cage stagey and that's. Uh, most likely what turned me off about it. If someone, and we can get to this in a, in a moment, but someone who was a little bit more mature in the faith and mature in their understanding of the doctrines of grace, if they would have explained it to me, I might've been a little bit more receptive to it. Uh, but one of the conversations that I had with uh, one of my, who is now my friends uh, from Midwestern, he says, you know, if, if God chooses to send my mother to hell because she was lost, you know, he would be perfectly justified and will be glorified in doing so. And I thought, man, how can you say that about your own mother? Um, and so I, I looked at Calvinism, um, descriptive of the things that I had just said uh, about kind of this bully type of God, this arrogant, prideful people, uh, but then also to hear someone say that about their own mother, I, I, I seen Calvinists as those who were very cold uh, evangelistically. I mean, typically what you might hear people say whenever they try to refute Calvinism is, well, if God's going to choose who he wants to be saved anyway, then why evangelize? And that's how I viewed those people. Um, and so my adherence to it or my, my cozying up to Calvinism really didn't come until after I'd left the campus. And just, you know, and I was thinking about this question earlier and the way that, that God has, has you know, brought people into my life to, to, uh, you know, to kind of formulate my views and, and correct my views on Calvinism. And really, it kind of started with with Alistair Begg. I, you know, it sounds strange because he's not a guy that really, you know, beats Calvinism home in his sermons. You don't really hear uh, a stance either way. Um, and so, you know, I I was really intrigued. There's a Scottish voice coming from the radio, and I was like, well, this guy sounds different. I think I'll give him a listen. Uh, because I didn't, I didn't like people like Piper. I didn't want anything to do with Sproul because these were bad guys in my opinion. And then I find out that Beg likes these guys. <laughs> so like, so I'm really conflicted. And so I, I feel that I need to give uh, Calvinism a, a fair hearing. And, uh, and so I begin to study a little bit individually on my own and, um, really with with the things that I had already formulated in my mind from what I studied, 
I, I began to take the church, the church that I'm currently at here in Osceola. Uh, I, I began to take them through the book of Jonah, either late 2015, early 2016. And again, with my uh, kind of just uh, draw towards Alistair Begg and seeing his, his friendship and camaraderie with a, a man by the name of Sinclair Ferguson, uh, found out that Ferguson had a commentary on the book of Jonah. And so I'm, I'm reading through Jonah. And guys, I don't know what it was other than just these five words. In, in Jonah 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And it was like a, a light just went on or a, a, a switch flipped. And I immediately began to think, well, if salvation belongs to God, it doesn't have anything to do with me. And the only reason why people are saved is because God has saved them. And so I began to ask the question, not, you know, how could God allow others, some people go to hell? My question then became, well, why would God choose to save any? And then to, to look at the total depravity, you know, which we see in, in Romans 3, that no one does good, that no one seeks God. You know, it, it's not even, you're not even spiritually capable of uh, of doing these things. And so then I went in and uh, started reading Sproul. Um, I could say that my my early years of, of Calvinism had a very Presbyterian lean uh, to it. And so I, I read Sproul's book, Chosen by God, and essentially he just answered any kind of reluctance or questions that I had about Calvinism. And so I just came to to embrace it um, and then I started to grow in my understanding so that's how I I would say that my journey to understanding the doctrines of grace began uh, now that I am you know older and wiser you know I don't have it much older than anybody on this podcast for sure uh, my hearts, my hearts began to be a little bit softer towards those who disagree. You know, I'm, I'm softer towards those who, who I wish would have been soft with me in my uh, misunderstanding and even misrepresentation of the doctrines of grace. Uh, I think it was even Martin Lloyd-Jones who would have considered the doctrines of grace to be non-essential as far as the, the unity of of the children of God and in, in the church, that you should never let that drive a wedge between people in the church. And so as far as pastoring, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I don't shy away from it. Uh, in fact, this past Sunday as we're dealing with first John chapter three, which John, he, he says, consider or see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And, and took that opportunity to, to hammer home God's sovereignty, our depravity, how God has, has come and condescended down to us in order to save us. And I would say that it's impacted my life personally. And this is what I told a very good friend of mine um, 
who was a Calvinist and endured with me through all my, my times of argumentation against it. I told him, I said, you know, now that I've come to embrace the doctrines of grace, and it should have been this way anyway, but I said, now that I've come to embrace these doctrines, I said, they've, they've brought me before the foot of the cross in the way that I've never been before, and they've kept me there. And so rather than being arrogant and prideful, it made me extremely humble. And, and that's just, that's been such an impact on my life and how I've viewed others, how I've ministered to others from a standpoint of, of the sovereignty of God and salvation. Um, it's brought me great comfort, both pastorally and personally, to know that God is, is sovereign, uh, even even more so than things concerning salvation. You know, one of my favorite verses that I cling on to is Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And so whether it is in salvation, whether it's in the Russia and Ukraine situation, whatever it is, to look at the scale of human history and knowing that a sovereign God controls all things and that everything is decreed and done according to the good purposes and kind intentions of his will, that gives me great peace and hope. And that's what I'm able to share with others. So that's my, I could go a lot more into that, but that's my story. So uh, Jimmy, how about you? Well, my story starts quite a bit differently than, than Ryan's in terms of background and has ended in much of the same place, or at least it hasn't ended yet because by God's grace, my story continues. Um, but in terms of coming to embrace the doctrines of grace myself, I did not grow up in in church until later in my childhood, till I was about 15, 16, is, is when I was going to church regularly. And, and by God's sovereignty, as I look back, I was drawn to the only Southern Baptist church in my community. And that church there wasn't quite like the description that I heard Ryan give of his upbringing. It did have some of those traditional elements to it. Um, the pastor was somewhat eclectic in his his theological formulation of things. He he would consider himself a three point Calvinist, except for hit the three points that he holds to are not nearly what you would think they would be as as a Southern Baptist. But I don't want to get off and chase that rabbit. But the youth pastor didn't really float out the the doctrines of grace a whole lot, didn't really embrace them explicitly even, but he preached the Bible, <laughs> and and he preached it expositionally. And when he would get to those, what an Arminian might consider problem text, and, and we all have our problem text, let's, let's not act like we don't, um, but when he'd get to those, he, he would go at them head on and, and say what they say. And and when we would raise questions, he he would answer them. And as I went through high school and I came to faith in Christ, I, I understood very, very clearly that 
if I were saved, if I had truly believed there was no possible way in which God would lose me. And being the analytical person I am, I kind of assumed that if if I couldn't lose my salvation because God wouldn't allow me to, because God would sustain me and persevere me through life and, and sustain my faith, I began just to logically conclude that salvation in some way, shape, or form had to start and begin with him. <laughs> I mean, if it ended with him, it, it, it had to start with him. Um, but I didn't have any of the terminology or anything like that. I The first Christian book I read, um, and and people will probably cast me down into outer darkness if I say the name, but it was Christian Atheist by uh, Craig Groeschel. And he is not someone who's, you're going to be reading all that often for theological depth. But that was the first Christian book that I read. And then after that, I read Radical by by David Platt. So I wasn't reading things that were were explicitly doctrinal in nature or went into it. However, David Platt does affirm the doctrines of grace to the best, or at least I believe he does. Um, and that did come out a little bit in that book, Radical. But it wasn't really until I got into Bible college, because that's that's where everyone goes to talk about Calvinism and Arminianism. That's that's the discussion to have. Once once you get mature and into seminary, you you debate more complicated stuff. Um, not really. Uh, you're still talking about Calvinism typically once you get in your MDiv and, and things of that nature. But that was the thing that was being discussed um, when I was in Bible college at Missouri Baptist University. And, and there was a good mixture of people who believed various things. However, the professors were all five-point Calvinists and defended that from Scripture. And as they were talking about it, I, I didn't really come to embrace it, but realized, wait a second, this is what I've, I've believed, and this is just a much clearer way to say it. And then I found out who they were reading and the guys that they recommended outside of the stuff on, on the syllabus, and I just started dev devouring literature on it. Um, read a lot of John Piper during that time, read, read Calvin's Institutes, and, and, and dug into those things, because at that point, I felt like I was really behind. So I really wanted to, I wanted to catch up to my peers, as well as I, I knew that one day I wanted to be a faithful pastor. So I wanted to have my, my own beliefs hammered out. And, and during that time, my, my convictions were just solidified and, and continued to be. Moved to Mississippi, went to Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. So I had the Presbyterian influence as well as, as Ryan and, and hammered out my beliefs even more there and, and finally graduated from, from Southern. And, and studied on my own the whole time. And really just over time, my convictions, my belief in the doctrines of grace have only strengthened. And, and then as time has gone on, one thing that I've learned is there's a lot more to it than those, those five bumper sticker points um, of, of the doctrines of grace. Even within those five points, there are so many distinctions that can be made. There's so much more depth that we can go into and, and, and many questions that are raised as, as we consider the five points. And, and really, 
what I've learned over time is I, I really, at that first point when I embraced it, I didn't know a whole lot. Um, and even now I would be foolish to think that I have it all figured out. And so I believing in God's sovereign grace, rely wholeheartedly upon his grace and mercy, even as I'm still trying to figure these things out and, and, and explain them and, and preach them faithfully demonstrating where they come from in the word of God. And I may have been a cage stager at one point. I don't recall. I perhaps have blocked that out of my memory. Um, I met some of them, and and I can just echo Ryan that one of the biggest turnoffs that anyone seems to have to Calvinism, at least initially, is their dealings with with Calvinist, and particularly young Calvinist. It seems. Um, so, if you're young and you're a Calvinist, watch out, cool your jets, humble yourself, pray a lot. And, and realize that just because you came to these convictions does not require that every other Christian around you instantaneously come to embrace them. Um, because there is a lot to wrestle with when dealing with the doctrines of grace. And, and that obviously, that view has impacted the way I do pastoral ministry. I fortunately pastor a church in which no one is hostile to the doctrines of grace. It, it was something that was expected when I came that I that I would believe and teach in accord with the doctrines of grace. So I I don't have to hide it. I don't have to sugarcoat it, and and I I do not. Um, but there are many brothers who do pastor in Southern Baptist churches that do have to walk on more eggshells than than I do, especially around this doctrine. But we've been adding many new members in our church and stuff like this. And and for people like that, they are hearing a lot of these things for the first time. So when talking about these things in interviews, I try to be very gracious, very clear, state everything up front, let them know what they're getting into as they're considering joining our church. And and graciously try to answer their questions. And, and if they're very adamantly hostile to it, I say, you know what? I know of churches that, that believe the Bible, that, that disagree with us here. I'm, I'm happy to point you in those directions. Um, but I, I wear the doctrines of grace as well as many other confessional doctrines on my sleeves and, and am not ashamed to, to teach them. But in terms of my life, and I mean, like Ryan, the doctrines of grace really, really just bring me a lot of comfort because as I grow in my faith, not merely in knowledge, but as I grow in my faith and I grow in the knowledge of Christ and the gospel, I've come to realize how much of a sinner I am. And I'm reminded of that often and even more so and each and every year and day i i am reminded of of my fallenness and how i am entirely dependent from beginning to end and the middle upon god for saving me and one last thing i would regret not mentioning it um ryan knows what text probably set me over the most as I talk about it all the time, 
Um, but Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, I, I remember reading that in my dorm room. And, and it, it was kind of like that Jonah experience that Ryan talked about when I read those first three verses and then get to verse 4 and it says, but God, it just clicked. And then, of course, I went back and I read Ephesians 1, and that, that just solidified my opinions of, of predestination and, and things of, of that nature. But that passage is still a passage that I am constantly going back to because we are saved by grace through faith, and it is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And, and in that, God receives glory. And, and I seek in my ministry and in my life to the best of my ability to, to give him the glory that is due to him as the sovereign savior. Thank you yeah, brothers the, both for the, that. Um, the, oh, the first five, have... yeah, the first five sermons that I ever heard from Jimmy was from Ephesians two. Whenever I first met him, I thought that that's the only text he knows how to exposit. So yeah. Definitely a passage that he continues to turn to. To to our listeners, if you can't tell, Jimmy and Ryan are are great friends, so um, they're able to joke with with each other in this way. Um, let's transition a little bit now. We love the SBC. I I love the SBC. I'm currently out of the four of us, the only one that's not a member of an SBC church. But uh, all of us either have uh, received some education from a Southern Baptist seminary, or we currently are receiving education from a Southern Baptist seminary. Um, so we've profited much from um, godly men and people in our lives from the SBC. But one objection that you often hear is that Southern Baptists aren't Calvinistic. And so both of you have already alluded to this in this conversation. Um, we just want to take a little bit of time now to talk about uh, is it compatible to be a Southern Baptist and a Calvinist? Can a uh, Southern Baptist be a Calvinist in 2022? And is there historical precedent for Southern Baptists being Calvinists? So um, Dewey, you also can feel free to speak to this, but let's try to do this in some way that would be orderly and profitable to our listeners. Well, I can I can start and just state the obvious. Um, all three of us, here other than austin are southern baptist and we are also calvinist so therefore yes <laughs> yes southern baptist can be calvinist in 2022 one Amen. of the uh, one of the things that like i told you i, I find a lot of uh, people who refute the doctrines of grace even so unlike jimmy i am at a church where i i sort of got a walk on eggshells around the subject of, of Calvinism. And I saw somebody on, on Facebook one time who was uh, just so upset that, uh, that a Southern Baptist pastor was Calvinist. And the comment that was made is, well, why don't they just go join a Presbyterian church? Because that's what Presbyterians believe. That's not what Baptists believe. And so anyone that, that comes into my office and wants to uh, not so much argue because I, I'm, I'm past the point of argumentation, but has concerns about the doctrines of grace, uh, 
first of all, of course, we go to scripture and look at uh, Ephesians 2, look at, uh, you know, uh, Acts 13, 48, as many as who were appointed to eternal life believe. But then I'm able to even go to the Baptist faith and message, the current confession of faith that Southern Baptists hold to, in which it has an explicit section on God's purposes in election. Now, there might be some freedom in that definition to, to kind of be on the fence of, of what uh, version of election you, you want to adhere to. But regardless of that point, it's not, uh, it's not contradictory to be Calvinistic and Southern Baptist. And I would say that because the, our own confession, our own statement of faith um, opens up the possibility for people to adhere to Calvinism and still be Southern Baptist. Absolutely. Um, Ryan, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the Baptist faith and message. You know, it it has its roots. It has its origins in the abstract of principles that James Pettigrew Boyce drafted back in the early years of the the founding and development of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So, you know, it was mentioned by Jimmy uh, earlier in the conversation about the historical origins of uh, Calvinism and how it has application to uh, Baptistic thought. I, I would go so far as to say that if you look at the first, you know, 50 years of the Southern Baptist Convention, it, it would have appeared maybe even uh, contradictory to be a non-Calvinist within the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I mean, you just look at you look at where Southern Baptists came from. I, I was thinking about this before our conversation. In, in 2015, Dr. Thomas Kidd did a study on the origins of Baptist church life in America. So where, where did Baptist church life in America originate from? And according to Dr. Kidd's study, uh, as of night or as of uh, 1793, there were 1032 Baptist churches in America total. And of that 1032 Baptist church count, 956 of those congregations self-identified as Calvinistic. Um, and many of those churches would go on to join the Southern Baptist Convention and it's found in 1845. So I, I just think that, um, and what, this is something that I try to point out to, to friends and, and church members at, at our uh, church here in Edna, is that as you guys have mentioned um, so well so far tonight, you can definitely have disagreements on the doctrines of grace and still have a great relationship together, still do life within the context of a local church, serve the Lord in, in various ministry capacities. But it is important nonetheless to, to recognize that as Southern Baptists, we have more roots and, and deeper roots in Calvinistic theology than we do in non-Calvinistic theology. And to suggest otherwise just, just doesn't really do adequate justice to the historical evidence. Y'all mentioned um, the first four faculty members of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, James Pettigrew Boyce, John Broadus, Basil Manley Jr., William Williams, they were all Calvinists. Um, they adhered to the doctrine of grace. And as Jimmy mentioned, uh, they, they were like him in that they wore their confessional um, convictions on their sleeve. They were unashamed in their convictions. Um, the first four presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention were Calvinists, William B. Johnson, R.B.C. Howell, Richard Fuller, and P.H. Nell. Um, again, continuing that, that, that thread, if you will, from the, the roots of Calvinistic theology and Baptist church life in America and the 
late 18th century and on into the 19th century as well. And then even today, you know, uh, our church participates in the Annie Armstrong Week of Prayer, the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, and other uh, missionary uh, outreaches and, and fundraising endeavors. And many of those missionaries adhere to the doctrines of grace as well. So, you know, in a very real sense, even to the present day, there are there are still reminders of the the historical roots of Calvinistic theology in our denomination, and we shouldn't be ashamed of those roots. We should be honest about them. Um, and we should also be gracious in informing our brothers and sisters who who may be new to the doctrines of grace or that they still may be grappling with what is, um, you know, being confessed in the doctrines of grace. We need to be gracious with them uh, as they come to see these truths from the, uh, for themselves from the word of God, not from John Calvin, uh, not not from uh, these these godly men and women who held to these uh, truths, but but. We believe them in so far that they are taught in the Word of God, and um, as each of you mentioned so wonderfully, um, that's our duty as as under shepherds of Christ to, to ultimately point our people uh, in our congregations back to um, sacred Scripture. Dewey, before and, you ask oh, one of the last questions, I wanted to make just a comment, and it, and Jimmy's going to hop in here too. It seems like just before you you get ready to wrap us up, but uh, you mentioned. Um, the founding presidents of the SBC that were Calvinistic, it might be uh, helpful to our listeners to talk about the current sitting presidents of the various Southern Baptist seminaries that are currently Calvinists as well. Um, isn't it like five out of six of them? Or um, if not Something five like out of six, that. it's it's the majority or all of the seminaries currently have Calvinist uh, presidents. So Jimmy, go ahead before Dewey begins to wrap us up. Yeah, I mean, a majority of them would would it, at the very least be very friendly to the doctrines of grace, if 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 not embracing all five, embracing four. I I believe, and and I may be wrong, but I believe Aiken might be a four point um, Calvinist. Um, but with that being said, you mentioned just how all the the first few presidents of the convention, the presidents of the flagship seminary. We could even go to Southwestern. B.H. Carroll was definitely a Calvinist. Um, the Mission Society, um, which was ultimately based upon a mission society founded in England, um, the Baptist Missionary Society, all those guys that started that were evangelical Calvinist. Andrew Fuller, William Carey, and and Jake Stone can tweet the rest of them if he listens this listens to this. Um, he he knows them all by heart. But I mean, many of the churches that formed the Southern Baptist Convention confessed the sixteen eighty nine and its American renditions. The convention itself did not come out with a confessional document until I believe the Baptist Faith and Message in 1925, and that's perhaps one of the worst mistakes that they made, not having a, a convention confession by which the churches assented. But I believe that was probably because they assumed everyone um, confessed very similar doctrinal statements. I mean, other ones floating around during that time would have been the New Hampshire Confession. And, and that is explicitly Calvinistic. Um, there, is, there is no doubt about it. 
And then the abstract of principles with Southern Seminary, definitely Calvinistic. Many of the books being published during that time, I mean, John Dagg, his theology, explicitly Calvinistic. James P. Boyce, his theology. Many of the guys were reading John Gill still at this time. Andrew Fuller, they were still reading Fuller. They were reading guys like Charles Spurgeon, who would have been a contemporary. It's it's somewhat ridiculous to, to say that there is no Calvinistic roots to the Southern Baptist Convention. And Ryan will remember this discussion because Ryan and I are in the same association. And, and we actually passed our churches just, I mean, five miles down the road from one another. But we were at an associational meeting, or rather a youth camp, and the director of missions was talking with us. And, and he basically was saying that he wished that Southern Baptists would get more back or get back more to their general roots. Um, and by that, he meant General Baptist, to which I replied, probably in not the most gracious of tone, when was that? And and he didn't have anything, obviously, because there isn't anything. Now, yes, there were few people here and there that affirm or that held to the governmental theory of atonement. I believe William Johnson actually held a version of the governmental theory of atonement. But still, in terms of the other doctrines of grace, most were confessing them. Um, and it's quite ridiculous to say that there is any General Baptist influence, direct influence upon the founding era of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, especially when you consider how strongly Southern Baptists, even to this day, still defend the notion of perseverance of the saints. General Baptists do not adhere to that and, and would not be so strict upon it. But You'd have a hard time even today finding a Baptist that would deny what's commonly called eternal security, but in its more robust form, it's it's the perseverance of the saints. Um, and even in my own setting, when I've talked to people who are not Calvinists, when I say, don't say perseverance of the saints, but define it in the way that I would define perseverance of the saints, they're like, well, yeah, obviously, I believe that. <laughs> so... Yes, you can you can be a Southern Baptist and be a Calvinist. And there is, as Dewey said, more historical precedents for that than not so. Amen. And if I if I could just do a, a quick uh, shameless plug here, the association that my church right now um, that I'm currently uh, the pastor of youth education discipleship for um, we would not identify as a Calvinistic church, but it's interesting that when our church was planted and when we joined the Colorado Baptist Association um, upon being planted here uh, in Edna back in the late 1800s, we identified with the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith, which, as you mentioned, was robustly Calvinistic. So that's something that I've even pointed out here to some of our members who've asked questions about, um, you know, just where do the doctrines of grace fit into Southern Baptist theology, piety, and practice, um, both right now and historically? And I, I always point back, I said, you know, it's interesting you should ask that because our our church body um, was founded as a Calvinistic uh, local church. And though we don't identify as such anymore uh, collectively, that that is our roots. And just to echo something that Ryan said before, before we prepare to wrap up this great discussion, um, 
it's very interesting to note that even the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, they were actually more self-identifying Arminians on that panel that mm-hmm. that edited the 63 and, and ultimately codified the 2000 that that is the standard doctrinal statement for the SBC. So that just, you know, d- despite our historical origins, that just goes to corroborate the reality that Arminians and, and Calvinists can do ministry together and do ministry well. And we can we can stand together um, for the glory of God and the good of uh, the church together. Um, and I, I think that's something that tends to get lost in these discussions. Uh, but we need to be mindful of them, uh, especially uh, within the context of the local church. But uh, by way of conclusion and uh, just wrapping up everything we've talked about tonight, we've had a great discussion on the doctrines of grace during our time together and just uh, by way of conclusion, uh, do any of you brothers have any final thoughts to leave our listeners with on the subject of Calvinism? Or uh, do you guys have any sneak peeks you want to share uh, regarding what the rest of the series is going to look like? Go ahead, Ryan. <laughs> I, I I don't have anything really to say. You know, I, I, I like to keep people guessing. Uh, but <laughs> like I, I tell people, who, and I think everybody would have to to agree with this, that whether you agree with Calvinism or not, words like election, predestination, foreknowledge, these aren't words of John Calvin. These are words of the Apostle Paul. These are God's words in Scripture. And uh, I think that everybody, at the very least, should do what I had to do and what many others have had to do and sit down and and give at, at the very least uh, an honest attempt to, to try to rightly understand these things in their historical and biblical context. Amen. Jim, any thoughts, brother? Well, I have a few, but I do just want to read paragraph seven of the 1689 Confession of Faith on chapter three of God's decree. I think it is just very helpful. I read it to my church when when I talked about the divine decree from the Baptist Catechism. I, I think it is something good for every Calvinist to understand. And it says this, the doctrine or the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election, so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. When we are dealing with divine sovereignty, when we are dealing with election, the predestination, as the confession here calls it, the divine decree more broadly, we are dealing with things that are high mysteries. And and it would be foolish for any of us to think that we we can parse the finer points all the way to the point where we can say we comprehend the decree of God, because as we should know, God's decree comes from God. And God is infinite and incomprehensible. Thus, though we might be able to describe what God has done in the decree, there is much to it that we will never fully comprehend. And and by God's grace, 
thankfully, we do not have to have a perfect doctrine of election for God to bring us into glory. And that goes for our brothers who do not agree with us and sisters who do not agree with us, particularly on the doctrine of election or the doctrines of grace in particular, so long as they've trusted in Christ the Lord as their Redeemer for both eternal life and the forgiveness of sin. We believe God is a sufficient Savior, and He saves us in spite of our many defects, both in morality as well as in our doctrine. Now, there are central truths. We don't deny that. We care about doctrine. That's why we're doing this series on the doctrines of grace. But in terms of a sneak peek, um, I guess we're just going to get into all the doctrines of grace. We're, we're going to deal with each point. We're going to show some Southern Baptist figures that, that confess them and, and quote them because we are Southern Baptist and we are going to defend the doctrines from scripture or from scripture and also defend them from other views and objections. So I'm excited to get into it. Ryan and I talked about these things a long time ago. It seems like forever ago um, when we, we talked about them together on an old, old podcast that does not exist anymore. Um, but we are happy to revive these these teachings to to introduce them to our audience and hopefully to encourage and edify people with these truths from God's Word. Well, we have been discussing uh, an introduction to Calvinism. Uh, Brother Dewey Doval has been interviewing Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Pendergraf with me, and we hope that you will profit from this series. Until then, we wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.